Hello and welcome to a special episode of No Place Like, a podcast that explores place and our relationship to it. Brought to you by ACCESS, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. I'm Jennifer Macy. Have you ever stopped to look at the trees that grow on the street where you live or work? Have you ever talked to the tree, hugged it? What about sending it an email? In Melbourne, the city's 70,000 trees were each assigned an email address so the public could let the city council know if the tree needed maintenance. But instead, emails sent to the trees were surprisingly personal. Dr Jenny Atchison is a human geographer with ACCESS and has been part of a unique research project with social sciences and arts researchers at the University of Melbourne and the City of Melbourne. The project involved reading the thousands of emails sent to the city's trees and studying the data to consider how people living in Melbourne feel about the trees. It's a hugely important topic in a city that's actively trying to grow and expand its urban forest and increase the tree canopy to address resilience in the face of climate change and an ageing urban tree population. Jenny Atchison has an intriguing academic background that bridges human geography, environmental science and archaeobotany, the recovery and analysis of ancient plant remains to study past human-plant interactions. Which is to say, Jenny is mostly interested in the relationships between nature and humans, how plants shape human lives and provoke us to think differently and live more sustainably. This episode was recorded live at the Wollongong Art Gallery on June the 3rd, 2021. So thank you very much everyone for coming out today um, on this wet, cold, windy night. Um, Thank you for the invitation to WAG to talk to you about urban trees. Um, my name's Jenny Atchison and um, it's really great to be here to talk to you about this research project today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and paying my respects to Darawal-speaking people of the Yuan Nation on whose lands I work and upon whose lands we come together today. I acknowledge Elders past and present and I acknowledge other First Nations people who are with us. I acknowledge that Yuan country, the land between the mountains and the sea, continues to be a source of inspiration and pride for Yuan people. Country is a term used by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia to describe and account for all that is experienced, seen and unseen. And a proper noun, Debbie Bird-Rose described country as multidimensional. It consists of people, animals, plants... Dreamings, underground, earth, soils, minerals and waters, surface water and air. There is sea country and land country. In some areas, people talk about sky country. Country has origins and a future. It exists both in and through time. Country has a living presence. I acknowledge that Yuan Country, where the University of Wollongong campus is located, has been a place significant for teaching and learning for millennia. By acknowledging Yuan Country, I endeavour to do that legacy of teaching and learning justice so that we might learn about the past and the ongoing injustices in the world that continue. I also especially acknowledge Wurundjeri people from Nam, otherwise known as Melbourne, on whose country this presentation is based. 
I'm not a botanist, but I've always been fascinated by plants. My father was a forester and a national parks ranger. He had, still has, a forester's eye for spotting good cabinetry timber amongst the chaff of the forest and a botanist's nose for distinguishing rare or endangered plants based on microscopic details. I spent countless hours accompanying my dad in the bush on the north coast of New South Wales through the Mile Lakes, Woco and Barrington Tops National Parks. He used to take great delight in driving me up the Barrington Plateau through the ever-changing biogeography and unique microclimates of that escarpment. Lowland tropical subforest at the, at the base, tall, wet sclerophyll, up through the Antarctic beach forests and finally out onto the snow gums and alpine woodland. Despite both uh, my parents working professional jobs, they were also keen gardeners. Deep in the 1970s move to self-sufficiency, I lived on a farm from the ages of four to 13 where everything we ate, except the flour, came from the garden or the paddock. I collected sticks and chopped the wood for the stove, watered and picked the heirloom tomatoes, helped to move the beehive so that the bees could feed on the white cedar blossom before climbing into the paper box to hide. Looking idle was often met with an invitation for more chores. So my passion for plants didn't really start out as a fascination directly so much as a deep green immersion into planty worlds. Lured through a vivid childhood imagination, I was captivated by their infinite diversity, not to mention a deep gratitude for the way they filled my stomach. Given this background, it's perhaps not surprising then that my research has its origins in a deep yearning to understand people's relationships with plants. I started my research career here at UAW in the early 90s, and at that time I was interested in how landscapes had changed prior to European arrival and then what happened to plants after that period of time and the rapid processes of post-European land use change. I worked with senior Aboriginal custodians in the East Kimberley on Gadjurong country to understand how people manage plants, how they burnt particular parts of the landscape according to custom to stimulate flowering and how other sensitive plants were protected from fire. In the East Kimberley, Aboriginal people were enrolled into the cattle station workforce in the early 1900s. Traditional obligations to look after country through the use of cultural burning and other means was difficult for people to maintain while they were working the cattle, and this impacted many of our native plants. My early career traced the disappearance of important native foods as a result of this change. Fruit trees that we now know from the archaeological record were present for over three and a half thousand years, disappeared after European arrival because people were no longer able to manage country. Aboriginal people on Gadjurong country like to burn their country frequently, at least every three years. And so the decline in burning meant that when fire did come, eventually it was much hotter and eventually it killed many of the important traditional food plants that people had previously relied upon. I've since gone on to research other people's relationships with plants, including wheat and agriculture in southern Australia, as well as invasive weeds uh, such as salvinia and mimosa and rubber vine, amongst many others. These plants are also implicated in different kinds of land use change. But my education in the deep cultural history of people's relationships to plants and the way in which plants become entangled in our lives started with this work in the Kimberleys. 
Senior women like Biddy Simon in the picture, now in her 90s, showed me how people look after plants. And what I learnt was that the landscapes need people in them to care for them in order to maintain them. The unique Australian biodiversity that we see, that we often think of as wilderness, actually needs people in it to maintain it. What I also learnt at this time, however, is that that relationship goes both ways. People need plants to be healthy. Healthy country means healthy people. This human need for plants is about our material needs, but it's more than that. It's more than about our material things, which brings me to the subject of today's talk, which is talking to trees, talking to urban trees, that is. So most of our world's population now live in cities. More than 4 billion people, that's 55% of the world's population, live in urban areas. By 2050, it's estimated that figure will be closer to 7 billion people. Many of us probably think of cities and urban spaces as being primarily for people. Cities are where we live, where we work, where we go to school, where we play. People have constructed buildings, roads and other infrastructure in which to live and in order to move around. Humans build and live in cities because, as social creatures, it brings us together in all kinds of diverse ways. We move from home to the high street, to the office, the cafe, the supermarket, to the school, and back to home again. Cities are our natural habitat. But other things live in cities too. Indeed, it's the life of the cities, human and non-human alike, that make them livable. Non-humans living in cities are essential to the quality of our lives. Shade is just one example of how other living things make our cities livable. Here's one main thoroughfare in the photograph adjacent to a plating field in the suburb of Casuarina in the city of Darwin in the Northern Territory. You can only just make out that playing field because it is so deeply shaded in the tropical city of Darwin in recent years have seen ambient temperatures in the city streets already exceed 60 degrees Celsius. These trees in the photograph here are African mahoganies and they were planted after Cyclone Tracy in 1974 during efforts to rehabilitate the city. Ironically, recent cyclone activity in the form of Cyclone Marcus has seen the loss of many of these large shady trees like this one. High temperatures combined with average humidity means that there are real fears that parts of Darwin will soon become uninhabitable. And heat has become such a problem that it has prompted the local city council in Darwin to install constructed shade structures, metal frameworks over the top of the city streets with installed shade cloth. Such installations are quite successful, uh, but they are also incredibly expensive. We can design alternatives, but constructed shade structures like the one that's been built in Kavanagh Street in Darwin are not economically viable options. We really do need trees in our city landscapes. So examples like this show us why we need trees. In fact, there's a whole lot of research which shows us that urban forests are fundamental to city livability, to resilience and sustainability, which clearly identify and measure the contributions that trees make to supporting our lives and our well-being. Urban trees are critical for moderating extreme temperatures, for improving biodiversity, moderating air pollution, improving the quality of the air we breathe. And studies 
all show that having access to trees and green spaces tend to make us happier and tend to make us healthier. People are often more active when there is green space nearby. Much of this research shows us that we can measure the value of trees and other living things also in material, economic and technical ways. But it's clear that trees are also valued in other ways too. I became interested in the value of urban trees and the diverse ways in which people value them when I read Sonia Dumpelman's book, Seeing Trees. Dumpelman's book title asks us to see the trees that live in our urban spaces in a new light. She argues we humans mostly take them for granted in everyday life and in the development of our cities. Most people, she argues, don't really notice them or they see them as passive objects, just part of the background to our lives. Tracing the history of Berlin and New York through the 20th century, Dumpelman's book shows how different trees and civic greening programs there have helped to shape cities and their inhabitants in particular ways. For example, planting trees was an important part of the civil rights movement in New York and helped to make the connections that were important for African-American advocacy. In Berlin, the choice of trees planted in post-war affected the way different communities were able to come together and reimagine German nationality. Thinking of ourselves as living in urban forests is one way in which we might see trees differently. Dumpelman argues we should value them not because they service us or provide services to people, but because we are all part of living, connected urban communities comprised of all kinds of species. Inspired by these ideas, in 2017 I had the opportunity to become involved in a research project on Melbourne's urban trees with collaborators Dr Catherine Phillips and Dr Libby Strawn at the University of Melbourne and also in collaboration with the Urban Forest Group at the City of Melbourne. So this tree in the photograph here is a lemon-scented gum growing in Carlton. If you know Melbourne, this tree is located near the Melbourne General Cemetery in the middle of a major roundabout. It's one of the most photographed trees in Melbourne. But it's just one of many hundreds of thousands of trees across the Melbourne city landscape. And what we know from this research is that Melbourne's trees are under threat. Many are becoming old and are dying. And although uh, even the, the ones that seem healthy, those ones are also at risk from climate change. For instance, it's already getting too hot now for many of Melbourne's elm trees. These are trees planted in grand avenues at the turn of the century and for which the city is very famous. Elm trees are already under threat from insect and pest attack and climate change. The elm beetle, for instance, defoliates their leaves, making them very vulnerable during periods of drought and during Melbourne's increasingly frequent summer heat waves. Like many major Australian cities, Melbourne is expected to lose some 44% of its tree population over the next two decades. So in 2015, the city of Melbourne developed what they've called their urban forest strategy. This is a, an effort to set out a plan for managing and maintaining the urban forest, and this plan included a data visualisation, which I'm about to show you, uh, mapped 77,000 of the city's trees. 
So here is an image from this visualisation, uh, which is publicly available online on the City of Melbourne's website, which you can explore at home at your leisure. Essentially, each dot that you can make out or just make out on the image is a single tree. Each tree in the city is located on the map and each tree has a set of recorded features. You might just also make out that each dot has a colour and a shape code. These codes refer to life expectancy and the type or species of each tree when it is known. So on the right, for instance, you can see some of the common tree types across the city, including eucalyptus, platanus, otherwise known as plane trees, and elms. On the left, the colour code green indicates that the tree is healthy and has more than 20 years of anticipated life expectancy. Yellow-orange colour means that the tree has about 10 to 20 years expected to live, and red-orange means that the tree is dying. Because so many trees are ageing and coming to the end of their lifespans, the city identified that these trees needed a lot of attention and maintenance. And so in order to facilitate that maintenance, the city attached an email address to each of the trees in the data. Each of the 77,000 trees were given an individual email address and the public was invited to write in with their concerns about maintenance and management in the hope that the lifespan of the trees could be prolonged. But what happened was something quite different something quite unexpected. People wrote letters to the trees, love letters, letters of gratitude. They wrote personal and very detailed letters of their histories and relationships with the trees. Many are humorous and playful. Some are brief, others very long. We're talking thousands and thousands of emails. I think at the last count there were over 4,500 emails. The program is still ongoing and so you are still able to email a tree. The emails come from all over the world. So now as a researcher, this was a pretty interesting uh, proposition. It presented quite unexpectedly a very interesting data set for us. In the research team, we wanted to know what these emails might tell us about why people value urban trees and how they relate to trees. We knew technically and economically why they were important, but not how people feel about them. And feelings are important because they underpin how we value trees and what actions we might take to care for them. We wanted to know in the team which trees people valued and why. And we wanted to know why some people might not love trees because it's true that not everyone loves trees or at least people don't love all trees. Trees create waste, they cost money. Some trees are risky and dangerous. They can and do threaten lives and infrastructure. Before I introduce you to the data itself, just a word about this data. The emails are held in public trust by the City of Melbourne. It's a unique and special data set and I think it's fair to say because it contains so very many personal letters that it's quite sensitive. In some cases, it's very private. As researchers, we were given special access to the emails, but they were all de-identified in order to protect the privacy of the senders. We had access to the content of the email and we knew which tree it related to, but not information about the senders themselves. So I'm going to share with you some information about the content of the emails and the trees they relate to, but I can't tell you much about the senders, unfortunately, because that's confidential. What we did first is called 
in technical terms, a thematic analysis. We took a subset of those thousands of emails and we read them in detail for themes and patterns of what um, was mentioned or included. So I'm going to share with you some of those overall patterns and then I'd like to introduce you to three particular trees. In terms of overall patterns, first, people don't talk about trees, they write directly to trees. They address and talk to trees as though they are people. Trees are personified. This is a very consistent theme in the data. There is some variation in expression, but almost universally, people write as though the tree can hear them. For instance, trees might have been referred to as you rather than it. They are greeted as friend or sir, or they are greeted as a particular tree or a representative of their species. When trees are personified, there is a strong connection and intersection with emotion, especially where a personal address to a tree elicits powerful memories and recall of life stories for the emailer. And I'll talk a bit more about emotion in a minute. Second, people do make practical requests, which, if you'll recall, was the original intent of the program. But having said that, that, that was really the least frequent theme in the data. So practical requests primarily concern tree maintenance, watering, pest inspection, pruning, the kind of the run-of-the-mill um, kinds of requests that you might talk to council about. They included emails about tree heritage, damage, tree removal, replacement, rubbish removal, disease. Practical requests also included requests from other interstate councils and councils overseas about the program and about tree management. Indeed, this program has become a way for city councils across the globe to engage in urban forest management and to learn from each other. Again, it's in there, but it's not really the biggest theme in the data. Third, emails pointed to both the benefits that trees provide and to the problems or risks that they might proffer. The most common services noted were the, the, the services I mentioned previously, the biophysical. So they included provision of oxygen, the removal of carbon dioxide, clean air and so on. Emails also referred to specific aspects of personal enjoyment or well-being and to broader acknowledgement of making the world a better place. People talked about the very material everyday benefits they derive, such as shade, fruit, seats, uh, from the timber that might be made or a space for children to play. Fourth, emotion was a very large part of the data. People's emails are very strongly emotional and I'll share some examples with you soon. Diverse and strong emotions are a key and dominant theme. Emotions are expressed both about and to trees, including curiosity, appreciation, gratitude, love, hope, sadness loneliness, amongst others. Curiosity, for example, might manifest in the form of requests for more information from the tree about its life and requests for the opportunity to have ongoing communication with that tree. Love was deeply felt and took multiple forms. Love for specific trees, love for trees in general, love for the data visualisation itself, uh, love for the people behind the program, or simply love with the idea of communicating with a tree and the novelty of it. Many, many emails express gratitude for trees, often noting the material benefits described, but just really for being there in their lives each and every day. Loneliness was also commonly expressed. 
either in terms of suggesting a tree itself might be lonely or that the emailer might be lonely. The act of emailing a tree provided an expression of this emotion and an outlet for that direction of emotion, a way for people to find connection at a time of sadness, at a time of personal loss, recollection and reflection. The depth and breadth of emotions in the email data are quite unexpected. We might expect emotional relationships with animals, but probably most of us might not readily admit to that depth of emotion with trees. And this is important because it helps to tell us why people care for trees. What motivates people to look after trees and enjoy them in city environments is not just that they provide clean air, although people are grateful for that, but that trees help them to locate meaning from their everyday experiences. The solidity and perseverance of trees gives people hope. Their steadfastness gives people courage. When people are lonely, they find solace and comfort in a connection to a tree. People make observations about routines, patterns, seasonality and the duration of lives by watching and living alongside trees. The fifth theme in our data was about concern. So concern was expressed for specific trees um, in terms of the health and ageing issues and you'll remember that people interact with the trees by emailing them knowing what their lifespan of the tree is that they are emailing. People were concerned about individual trees and tree death and removal and many emails were written about notable removals, one of which I'm going to show you in a moment. Second, concern was indicated as part of wider issues important to the emailer. This included connection to local issues, permits, uh, environmental challenges such as drought and biodiversity loss. The period of data covered by the emails that we had access to included the most recent drought and concern related to water stress and environmental sustainability featured quite acutely. With 77,000 trees and over 4,000 emails, it was really a lot of data for us to look at. And so what we've also tried to do, apart from that um, very uh, academic style of analysis, is to present the data in the emails in different ways to return it to the community Most of our initial research has been funded by a community engagement grant and so one of the things we tried to do is to bring a team of people together to help communicate and bring the stories out in a way that respects the sensitivity and beauty of the data. Our approach has been quite multidisciplinary and it's fitting that we're sitting in an art gallery because one of the people that we've been working with is geographer and sound artist Dr Candice Boyd. So if the tree spoke is a sound artwork or a soundscape created by Candice with contributions from other members of the research team. And I'm going to play you some parts of that in a minute. In this soundscape, diverse readers give voice to a series of emails by reading them framed by environmental recordings of city and non-human places. And in those recordings also are the artist's imagined tree responses. The sound piece is comprised of podcast and what is known as binaural recording. So they've been recorded on a device that uh, tries to replicate the wraparound feeling of being in the environment. It's best really listened to on headphones, but we're going to try and replicate that here tonight. The complete sound piece is hosted on our website, but you can also listen to individual trees 
And in order to do that, um, I've got my trusty assistant, Leah, here to help me switch between my slides and the recording um, a few times. So please bear with us while we do that. So first, may I introduce you to the golden elm. In 2015, this tree was the most emailed tree. And of the descriptions that really stand out, it's often described as quite a stunning tree, which you might appreciate from the image. This particular tree has low sweeping branches and a lot of work goes into propping these limbs up so that they don't break. The Golden Elm, as it is known, is located in the Golden Elm Reserve. It's a National Trust tree and it's quite special because we know a lot about its particular history. We know that Mrs Eve Murphy planted this tree in 1940 and it was a commemorative tree planted on the birth of her son. She lived nearby opposite where the tree is now located. So elms, almost glabra, are widespread across the Melbourne landscape. They're a cultivar, most of the elms that are in Melbourne now are from York and they were cultivated in the 19th century and planted from the 1880s onwards in Melbourne. 55% of elms are in decline and are reaching the end of their lifespan in Melbourne, and many will need to be removed over the coming decade. This particular cultivar is not ready for our climate change. It will not tolerate the predicted changes that are coming, and so there's a lot of work going on now to prepare for succession planning. So they're looking for cult new cultivars that are warm-tolerant elms. Uh, that work is ongoing at the moment. So we're going to play you now some emails from the Golden Elm. I hope I'm emailing the correct tree, the huge tree just before you cross the Yarra River. For my whole life from when I was very small we would pass this tree. My grandmother would always say to my brother and me, there's your tree. Oh, we adored you. Now every time we come to the city, I make sure I drive past you and I always say to my beautiful daughter, that's our tree. I hope you were happy a few weeks ago when we had a picnic under you. We hugged you and we collected some of your leaves. You're a beautiful part of our life. Granny died in February this year. She was 98. When we were sitting under you, my daughter asked, why did Granny call you our tree? I never asked. Hello. Are you the big elm whose branches touch the ground? You're very pretty. I heard that you're the most popular and beautiful tree in Melbourne, based on the number of people who email you. Does that ever make you feel self-conscious? Do you ever ask the nearby Tristaniopsis canuca, does my almost look big in this? And how has your life changed since you became internationally famous? For instance, has a Hollywood producer approached you to star in your own reality TV show? Perhaps you could call it Branching Out, Full Treehouse, or All About the Neighbours Wood. Anyways, I remember you well from when I lived not far away in Windsor. Although you probably wouldn't recognise me, now you're a celebrity. Best wishes for another 70 years on the same spot. It is an interesting experience to email a tree. I am now wondering what response I will get back. Beauty. Memory. They matter to us, but in a very different way. There is no I. There is no 
The second tree I'd like to introduce to you is the lemon-scented gum that was removed from Flemington Road. This 94-year-old National Heritage Trust listed tree was removed in 2016 as part of roadworks for the City Link Tullamarine Highway widening project. It was also, for a time, the most emailed tree. And the emails here speak directly to this controversy. Controversy was often focused on the people involved around the citizen activist groups, around the arrests and the media reports at the time. After it was removed, the salvaged wood was turned into seats and benches that are now located in Royal Park. Corimbia citridora is a suitable tree for Melbourne's climate and it is being actively planted across this cityscape. Dear Flemington Road Lemon Scented Gum, we are writing from London as we are here visiting family and are so sorry we cannot help in your vigil. We admire your beauty every time we walk past you on the way to and from the park, every time we go past on a tram, and every time we drive past in a car. It saddens us so much that they are going to remove you. We hope Vic Roads will come to their senses and redesign the road so you can stay and continue to live. It's a shame that we as Melbournians cannot keep our beautiful trees which provide shade, food and a home for animals, sweet scents and food, medicine and most importantly oxygen in Australia's supposedly most livable city, which to be honest is an overstatement. Melbourne is quite the opposite with the idiots we have in control. What a tragic, unnecessary loss of a glorious Melbourne landmark. You welcome me to the city every day and bid me good night on my way home. You welcomed visitors to Melbourne for decades and hosted so many species in your being. In a world plagued with oxygen thieves, farewell to the most beautiful and gracious oxygen giver. From the garden state to the garbage state, what a shame, what a crime, what a waste. Dear lemon-scented gum, I miss you so much. You should never have been taken from us. You are older than cars, and this was the appalling reason you were savagely torn down. You had up to 61 years left to live, and I would argue many, many more. In this time, you would have continued to provide food to lorikeets and wattle birds and possums and New Holland honey eaters and so many other animals. You would have continued to provide increasing joy to those who entered the city on tram, train, car, bike, and by foot. We tried very hard to save you, but the odds were stacked against us. We will continue to fight for your brothers and sisters and use your destruction as a catalyst for change to ensure that a tree's value is acknowledged to be greater than the widening of a road for polluting vehicles. I will never forget standing under your extraordinary limbs, smelling your leaves and imagining what you must have witnessed over the past century. You will forever be missed. If you don't want to lose us, then you have to protect us. The third tree I'd like to introduce you to is the spotted gum in Royal Park. Corimbia maculata is a climate-ready species. It's not normally planted in Royal Park because it's not considered native to that area. It is native to a small patch of the Victorian Gippsland and to large parts of New South Wales, so it's a tree that many of us in the room might be familiar with. The location of this particular tree is highly significant 
It's in the largest park in the city of Melbourne. It's the site of Royal Park has been an important meeting place for Wurundjeri for many millennia. The particular area of land was set aside for public use in the 1840s and established as a park in 1876. The site was used as a military camp for American soldiers in the Second World War and became the location for emergency housing post-war. It has, in its history, also been the site of a psychiatric hospital. Today it is well known for its many recent plantings of native grasses. Dear Tree, thank you for being there. A few years ago I was a student at William Anglis TAFE just across the road. Every lunchtime I would walk across the road and sit in the shade you provided. Unfortunately, my partner at the time went nuts with a capital F during term break and called the college, my family and friends and told them all I'd been hit by a bus and died. I ended up moving back with my parents and tried to continue my studies next term. He then provided a place to sleep three nights a week as I now lived in a little country town and it was a four-hour coach trip each way to and from college. And then I broke my leg. I stopped being able to come to be with you, sit under you, but I never forgot. You provided me with shelter from the sun, the wind and the rain. You rocked me to sleep at night and even some days too when I couldn't be bothered to go back to class. Damn cannabis. <laughs> Years later, I came back and completed my studies. I am now a chef with experience in catering, banquets, functions and continue to sit under you whenever I get a free day. In closing, I wanted to say that you would never be forgotten and you will always have a place in my heart. Dear Sported Gum, I want to tell you a story about me, which is actually a story about you. Maybe you know it already. Maybe you can tell it better than I can. I first laid eyes on you one hot evening on a stroll through Royal Park. I had arrived in Australia just a week earlier as a study abroad student, and I was missing home like a part of me had vanished. But the day I saw you changed me. The field around you was glowing golden in the falling light, and the lorikeets sent their hunger through the boughs of eucalyptus trees. It's cliche, I know, to say that you took my breath away, but you took my breath away. You were this strong, solitary monument, and you made me want to burst into tears of happiness at the sight of you. Your smooth, pale skin smelled of parched earth and sunlight. Your arms were graceful, spreading from your trunk into a network of veins that extended into the sky. Over the next year, I spent hours beneath your branches, reading and writing and playing guitar, missing my home half a world away, wishing that Melbourne had been my home all along. You see, spotted gum, you were my tether. Whenever I started to drift off into loneliness or self-doubt, you were there to tuck me back to myself. You were like the city itself, welcoming and mysterious. 
There were days when you felt like my tree, and you greeted me as an old friend. Other days, I would feel a cool, weary breeze filter through your branches, and I would know that you were in one of your moods, and to keep my distance until it passed. This is how the story of you weaves into the story of me. If you did not stand with such strength and purpose, with nowhere to hide, I might never have learned how to either. I wanted you to know, spotted gum, that there is no such thing as just a tree. I wanted to thank you for humoring my tentative guitar strumming, for casting your sun-pricked shade upon my cheeks. Thank you for giving me a place to belong. P.S. I have a beautiful Chinese chestnut tree in my yard here that would love to meet you. People talk to trees, and in Melbourne they write to trees. Wherever we are, and regardless of whether we hear back from them or not, trees do make good listeners. The unexpected nature of this email data tells us something quite unexpected itself: that as much as we try to quantify and measure the value of trees in people's lives, it's clear that people value them in intimate and personal ways. At a time of ongoing and radical environmental change. We should be heartened by the gratitude and love that people have for trees, and city planners should take heart that their efforts to plant and care for trees has value in people's lives. These emails show us that people have hope and find joy in trees, and this should give us all hope in the potential for urban nature to bring people together. Where to from here? After a research hiatus last year. This year, we've been building the research team on this project and bringing in new expertise. We've been working with Dr. Anna Lewis and Dr. Chris Brennan Hawley here at UOW to help better understand the spatial characteristics of these emails and their relationships, and to test out some of the sentiments that we can identify. Their expertise is helping us understand which trees and which species were emailed, and the distribution of those factors across the city. We aim to build a picture of which sentiments are prominent in different localities, and we hope that this information will inform policymakers in their decision making, and so that they might build their maintenance program to better accommodate community ideas and values. This year, we've also commenced a new research project that builds upon this particular project. So the email data shows us that conflict and controversy over trees is persistent. The email project has inspired us to better understand how social conflict over trees plays out in urban areas, and our new research on conflict in urban greening aims to investigate this. Conflict is costly, and it can also lead to the loss and vandalisation of trees. So we aim to work with city planners, municipalities, and also citizens themselves to hear stories about the everyday challenges of living with urban trees, so that those challenges might be better addressed or even overcome.
We hope that our research on the social and cultural dimensions of urban trees and also the creative art and community engagement work we've done to return these tree stories to communities will inspire others to see urban trees in a new light. We hope that it helps others appreciate the role that trees play in the social and cultural life of our cities as they live alongside us. What people think of trees in other places. As far as we know, the Email a Tree initiative in Melbourne is the only one of its kind. It has generated a lot of interest from councils elsewhere, especially in terms of how local councils and other authorities engage with concerned publics about urban trees and how they invest public money to care for those trees. But the emails in the Melbourne project from people outside Melbourne surely tells us that this phenomena is not confined to Melbourne alone. You might recognise some of these trees in the Illawarra in the imagery. Trees have certainly featured in the life of Wollongong. In his book, My People's Dreaming, Ewan Mann and elder Uncle Max Dillamon Harrison notes the importance of trees in the local area when he says, I don't use a computer, but I receive emails from the land. They're spiritual ones. Likewise, Gundungurra woman and UOW PhD scholar Crystal Arnold, who's in the room with us today, has recently written about relationships with trees in the Illawarra and the place of trees in the formation of identity and personal well-being. Crystal notes in her work that reciprocal relationships with trees make us whole and can help to heal our relationships with each other. In the Illawarra, we have places named after trees, iconic trees that signify our place in the world, trees at the centre of public life, trees that are a point of concern and trees at the heart of local conflict. Our trees, like our people, are diverse. Some of our suburbs are very leafy and others require care and commitment to make them greener. The green spine of our city, the escarpment, helps to define our place between the mountains and the sea. These local examples hint at the social and cultural life of trees in this place, the geographic differences that might be apparent here, and also the abundant tree stories that we are yet to hear. Thank you. So, questions from anyone? Um, just a question for my notes. I've been taking notes here. How many trees did you say were in that Melbourne study in the map? 77,000. Oh, I wrote that. I thought, that can't be right. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, my question was about were there many trees, uh, emails to trees with, that were tube stock or that were smaller and what sort of relationships people saw as they changed because uh, with the urban greening that's going on, you know, tube stock are cheap but they're seen as vulnerable, advanced stock are more expensive but we've seen plenty of cases of them being vandalised as well but they don't, for some landscape architects, I think they don't have that as much of a, a wow impact so immediately. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your question. So we're still working through that data right now. That's one of the things that we're doing now with um, Anna and Chris is to identify the kinds of profiles of what kinds of trees have been emailed. Age is certainly one thing that we can look at because we know the ages of all the trees. And our preliminary results show that most email people email uh, more frequently, they email older trees 
So they email and engage with the trees that are dying more frequently than they email with young trees. Having said that, there are um, still quite a few emails to young trees and the sense of the text is also different in those, young, in those emails to younger trees. Um, how do you feel that uh, your research current and, and how it will evolve will impact um, how the other people in society, whether it be councils or whether it be urban societies, decide or make decisions about tree planting and getting away from monoculture and, and different responsibilities there? Thanks for the question. So... The project is a collaboration with the City of Melbourne and we've been working very closely with the City of Melbourne and their policy makers and they're very keen to take on board and learn from these emails in the way that publics engage with trees and they are learning through this project how people value and so they're responding to that in their processes. They're very quite deliberately... Um, responded to the ways that people are engaging and they're quite sensitive, I guess you would say, in, in recognising the, the level of sensitivity, around, particularly around certain kinds of trees. Melbourne um, is, is actively planting lots of trees at the moment, as are many city councils, and they involve the public in that process too. So I would say... Certainly there have been controversies in Melbourne, like in many places, uh, but the city is, is really keen to, to learn from what they see through this project to, to improve how they do things and to improve the way that they plant. Um, there's, a, I guess, a question about what trees are planting also maybe behind... What trees are being planted, um, perhaps in your question as well. So that's a really interesting point because... With climate change, the trees that we might have planted in the past may have to change. And so even trees from that local area may not survive there with the, with the current predictions. And so often it, it's happening that we need to, to look to places that are warmer and drier um, and to look to the trees that survive those kinds of climates to bring them into cityscapes. So it is changing the way that cities are choosing which species. It's no longer as simple as let's plant more native trees because even local native trees may not be climate ready. Um, Jenny, what's people's what's, what's your initial sort of um, data and research saying about people's relationships between um, native and exotic trees? Is there um, a difference? I mean, it seems like people just love trees in their own right is there is there a debate there I'd, I'd love to tell you a clear answer on that but that's not quite able to do that yet because that's one of the things that we're looking at we thought that it would show that preliminary results very preliminary suggest that it's it's not the case um, there is however potentially differences between where trees are located whether they're on streets or in parks um, but the native non-native divide doesn't seem to be a very big indicator of people's relationships at this stage. Um, as I said, we're only partway through that analysis at the moment, so I hope to be able to share <laughs> some other more deeper insights into that soon. Hi there. Do you think there's a relationship between some of the controversial decisions that are made by the different levels of government and there's a relationship then 
with these random acts of vandalism in the sense that the, the values that um, are, are placed on an urban environment. I'm just thinking, like, obviously, at Randwick, when the, the light rail went in there, all those figs that, that got taken out, then it gives licence to certain individuals to see, like, the incident that happened there on the foreshore, just that, that blatant vandalism. Do you think there's a, a relationship between those two things? Thanks for your question. That's a great question. Um, in this data set, no, I can't say that, the, that, that I can see a relationship. It does raise, certainly does raise questions, though. People do draw that together, um, as you have done. Um, but in this data set, we can't see... We've, we've looked across the themes that come out, and we... In, in this data set, I guess it's fair to say that controversy is controversy around tree removal rather than tree vandalism. And so we're not really able to answer that from this data, but we hope that our new project will, will be able to address that. We are looking at different kinds of controversies in our new research, including tree vandalism, which is a phenomena in the Illawarra, certainly. Um, and so we, we do hope that by investigating different kinds of controversy, we'll be able to um, provide insights about the relationship between those things. Um, Jenny, thanks for that. That was a wonderful talk. Uh, I've got a couple of questions. One um, is, did people write to um, any highly kind of brutalised trees, you know, like what councils, the way some councils prune trees under power lines, for example, you know, or were they more writing to just nice trees, you know, beautiful ones. Um, and the second question is unbadly formulated. I, I haven't been able to formulate it very well in my head, but just bringing your research back to Wollongong, and um, because we know that Wollongong's pretty, it's got quite a low canopy cover here, and the council's trying to in, implement a greening strategy here, but it's in pretty early days. Um, what, how can we apply or use your research or is there, is there work, is, has the university linked up with the council in some way, What's, you know, what, where do we go from it? Thanks David. Um, formidable questions there from you of course. The, um, the question about do people engage with beautiful trees versus ugly trees or damaged trees is a really interesting one. The most emailed tree in the data set now is a regular street plane tree. It's a very ordinary looking tree and it receives um, a huge proportion of the emails that come in and they're not all short and sweet. Some of them are very long and very personal and we've visited this tree a number of times trying to figure out why on earth is it that this tree happens to be the tree that people email. Um, I, we don't yet have a, uh, a pinned down answer. We've got a number of, of theories that we're testing out about why people email this tree, but it's in the city and a lot of people pass it and it's on the way to work. And so some of the anchor points for those emails are about the way that, you know, they watch it from their office space and they look out upon it um, as they toil away at their computer screens, for example. So... Um, although it may be ordinary, its place in their lives is, is actually quite special. Um, to your second question on Wollongong and how to use the insights of this research, not yet. We haven't made connections because we're still in the process of, of figuring the end of this project out. But I think 
the key way that you could use the insights of this research is to engage people, um, citizens, publics, in the process of tree management. So whether it's planting or pruning or maintenance, whatever it is, that, those, that people have an opportunity to be involved in that and to not just have a say in a consultative forum in a, in a, in a council advertisement, but to actually be part of those programs in their local area when trees are being addressed. Now, I know that's probably um, a very um, idealistic way of looking at it, but I think the message from the emails is that people do care for trees and so if they are involved in those processes, they're more likely to be observant about um, the vandalism that might take place and they're more likely to value the way that the interactions that they have with the councils that are looking after those trees. Thanks, Jen. My question follows up from what you've just said. I really like your team's decision to bring the email stories to life in the way that you have. I think it's really effective. Um, listening to those, listening to the stories rather than reading them, but then also hearing the contextual sounds that the tree inhabits every day. Um, you said in some of the emails that um, participants mentioned um, a love for the process of being able to contribute and to say thank you and a love to the people who have facilitated that. Um, I'm wondering whether you've been able to capture or garner reflections from just everyday people or those participants who have heard those soundscapes and um, what, what, what have they said? Thanks, Laura. So one of the things that we have done in Melbourne um, is, when, this is before COVID, was we, we took people on a tree tour, a public tree tour, and we played the recordings in those places. And so we've been able to talk to people as they are engaging with that tree and hearing those recordings and hearing their stories about that tree too. Um, in that process of running the tree tours, uh, people sent us postcards about their stories to trees. So, so yeah, it's been really fun, I guess, to, to do that and to have that real engagement with, with people that are interested in the stories. Um, in terms of love for the program, one of the things I haven't mentioned is that, of course, the City Council receives all those emails and they read them and they actually respond to them. So people are responding as the trees... Um, and I, I haven't played them here because they're actually not part of our data set, but they are part of the program um, that people do respond as trees and have maintained those responses. There's two council staff that it's part of their <laughs> part of their job role is to write as a tree, um, which is you know fascinating to see how they've learnt to do that because it wasn't it wasn't expected. They they hadn't expected this kind of interaction with the public. Um, and they've had to learn how to write as a spotted gum or a, <laughs> as a plain tree, <laughs> yeah, and get into the humour of it. Uh, the majority of the people here are females, and uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, is it the same with the... Uh, the uh, whether it was the same with the emails, it was mostly females that wrote in, and does that mean anything? Yeah, great question. Unfortunately, we can't answer that because the data is confidential so we're not able we didn't have access to information about the emailer the emails are very private and um and sensitive some of them and so in order for us to have access to the content of the email 
those emails had to be de-identified completely for us. So we don't know the emailer at all. We don't know their name. We don't know their gender. We don't know um, where they are located, although we can kind of guess sometimes. We can guess in some cases what the gender might have been, but for much of the data, we have very little information about the emailer themselves. I just wondered how you um, uh, let people know in the area that the trees could be written to. Was it by advertising or general um, mail-out? So the council um, has this visualisation on their website. And to be honest, the early days of how it was advertised, I'm not entirely sure about. But I understand that it kind of took off. And then once, you know, there were media articles. There's quite a lot of media um, that's been done on this program. And um, it came well known through social media as well. So there was, I guess, word of mouth. People do search out particular trees where they live. So also knowing that there's an email for the tree that's right outside of your house um, has been quite an attraction for people. But I I think, you know, the media that was done and the unexpected nature of it, you know, has helped to generate interest in that way. Uh, were there emails written to what would be called weed species like camphor laurels or coral trees, the established ones? Yes, there definitely are emails to those trees. They're not very common in the cityscape, um, in the planted city, but they are in there, definitely. Um, yeah, not very common, but they are there. There's really not a lot of data to analyse, to be honest with you, but um, yeah, they, they are definitely in there. Jacarandas is another one that people often think of as weedy, although many others wouldn't think of them as weedy. They, they do tend to self-seed and self-sprout, and therefore they're allowed to let live, um, and people love jacarandas. Even in Melbourne, you know, they, they do quite well in certain areas. So, yeah, the, the weeds are... It's going back to that native, non-native thing. We're still sort of teasing out a bit about that. There are definitely emails to weedy species in there, but it's, it's not statistically relevant, apparently, <laughs> so that we can only believe the statistics at this stage. Two short questions. How do people identify the email address for that tree? So on the data visualisation... If you click on the dot for that tree, it will bring up a, a balloon of information, including the email, so you can directly click through to that tree. And have you identified trees that will be able to cope with climate change? Yes, the city is doing that. That's um, Like I said, I'm not a botanist. It's not, not part of what I do, but it is definitely part of what the city is doing is to, to plan out for the next, you know, 20 to 30 years and beyond, what the city forest will need to look like in order to maintain that level of canopy cover. Um, so species like the lemon-scented gum do quite well and are what's called climate-ready, and they are being actively planted. And elms are more problematic and difficult um, because they're not climate-ready. The plane trees that are quite common also um, are struggling in the increased summer heat waves in Melbourne and so there are also, there's a lot of work being done right now to look at different cultivars of plane trees uh, simply because plane trees, although many people don't like them, are very pollution tolerant and very tolerant of very, 
you know, what we would call harsh and aggressive kinds of environments where there's concrete and little else around them. Plane trees do quite well in that and there are new cultivars coming that have been developed to cope with climate change as well. So they're bringing in new cultivars that will be planted that will replace the plane trees that are there now. We've got time for one more question and we've got, I think it's David, right? Hi, Jenny. Um, one last question. What's your favourite tree <laughs> and what would you say to your favourite tree? <laughs> Gosh, um, I wasn't prepared for that one. I think, I think my favourite tree has become the spotted gum because of the stories that surround it. I think it's, its place in the landscape and the refuge that it provides and the way that people engage with it is really to find comfort and solace and so it becomes just really memorable for those reasons. Um, I don't know what I'd say to it. I've only met it once <laughs> and I was conducting a tour at the time so I can't, I can't recall what I, what I said to it but I think I would thank it and you know, just um, be grateful for the comfort that it provides so many people. That was Dr Jenny Atchison from the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong. This episode was recorded live on June the 3rd, 2021 at the Wollongong Art Gallery, which is on the land of the Yalauri, Wadiwadi and Darawal peoples. No Place Like is a production of Access, the Australian Centre for Culture, Environment, Society and Space at the University of Wollongong and aims to explore place and our relationship to it. To hear more from the Entanglement's live lecture series, subscribe to No Place Like wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. You can find the latest research from Access on our website. Just follow the link in our podcast show notes. The Twitter handle is at access underscore G-E-O-G. This podcast is produced by me, Jennifer Macy. Thank you to Kevin Brand for the original music. And thank you for joining us. (laughs) 